Education plays an important part in rehabilitation, and each boy is required to attend classes during one half of each week. It's the early morning hours of April 15, 2015, and members of the Okeechobee County Sheriff's Office are gathering at a 25-acre property north of the city of Okeechobee. The deputies are at the former Florida School for Boys in Okeechobee, a reform school opened in July 1959 by the state of Florida for delinquent juveniles. As news helicopters circle overhead, cadaver dogs begin searching the property for the bodies of dead children. The cadaver dog search at the old Florida School for Boys. The Okeechobee Sheriff's Office is preparing to search that site with cadaver dogs. Searching for possible human remains at a former school for boys in Okeechobee. Rumors of buried children at the Okeechobee campus. How did we get here? Through the decades, rumors had swirled that beatings and torture were occurring at the school. Those who spent time in the institution described a culture of fear, abuse, and sadism behind closed doors, with whispers of dead bodies buried behind the school's dairy barn. We look into this school and trace its origins going all the way back to the 1900s in today's episode of True Oki. On January 1, 1900, over 50 years before the School for Boys in Okeechobee opened, the state opened what was called the Florida State Reform School. It was located just south of Mariana, a small town in North Florida. The state established the school for what they called the worthy goal of reforming and making self-sustaining and self-respecting citizens. Basically, they were going to take troubled kids, turn them around, and make them into non-troubled adults. The state said at the reform school, kids would have the opportunity to learn skills like carpentry, blacksmithing, grow vegetables, and to raise hogs and cattle under the supervision of staff. A glowing report in the Mariana Times Courier in 1906 describes the young students at the school as rosy-cheeked and robust in good health, adding that the youth are well-fed, well-clothed, sleep in clean, comfortable beds, and attend Sunday school every week. Throughout those first years at the Mariana Reform School, an odd thing kept happening. The school kept catching on fire. An unexplained and consistent series of fires took place at the Reform School in those early years. Year after year, fires destroyed buildings, equipment, and killed animals. What was causing all these fires? Newspaper reports during that time 
indicate that police suspected an arsonist. After a fire in 1906, an article in the Pensacola News Journal reported that a group of former guards of the school were suspected of setting the fire. Still, throughout the first decade or so, the dormitories where the boys slept managed to avoid the constant fires. That was until one night in 1914. Around three o'clock in the morning on November 18, 1914, a fire broke out in the first floor of a three-story dormitory building at the reform school. The boys slept on the second and third floors, so by the time they were awoken up, there wasn't a path down. The fire blocked the way. Also, access to the fire escape through the windows was locked. Thinking quickly, nearly 100 boys were able to escape the building by using a skylight to climb onto the roof and then using the fire escape to climb down. Some tried to force their way through the locked fire escape. The superintendent of the school realized that access to the fire escape was locked and attempted to retrieve the key from his office only to find his office completely engulfed in flames. The superintendent grabbed an axe and climbed up to a landing point of the fire escape on the second floor. As he climbed to the landing, he sees three people inside the window, desperately trying to break the gate open. Using his axe, he smashes the lock on the gate, breaking it loose. But he's unable to move the metal gate out of the window. As he's struggling to lift the heavy metal frame, the floor suddenly collapses underneath the three men locked inside and they fall into the flames. The three men that fell were a carpenter at the school, his son, and a guard. The bodies of seven boys were found in the aftermath of the fire, lying in their rooms. One of the boys killed was a 15-year-old named Clifford Jeffords. Clifford's father had died early in his life, leaving him and his mother. According to an article in the Macon Telegraph in 1914, Jeffords' only crime before being sent to the school was truancy. He skipped school. He died of smoke inhalation before he could escape. His charred body was found near the remains of his bed. Within 30 minutes of being discovered, The fire burned the entire dormitory to the ground. In addition to the repeated fires, 
The boys at the Mariana Reform School were subjected to a system of abuse and borderline torture. Far from the lofty goals set by the state of a school to develop delinquent youths into upstanding citizens, the school became little more than a sadistic prison for children. Stories of abuse and torture surrounded the school. Throughout the first 13 years of being opened, more than six state-led investigations were conducted into the institution. Those investigations found that children as young as five years old were being held in irons and chains. Children were being hired out by the school for labor. They were unjustly beaten and were without education, proper food, or clothing. But the most prevalent torture by far were the beatings. While a variety of tools were used, the favorite among staff was a five to six foot long, four inch wide leather strap. This strap consisted of two pieces of leather with a pliant piece of sheet metal sewed in between. Oftentimes during the beatings, the holes in the strap would become filled with the boy's clothes and flesh. As the decades rolled on into the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the horrific stories continued to come out of the school in Mariana. Bryant Middleton was 13 when he was sent to the Mariana school in 1959. There, he saw a building on campus known as the White House. You were sent to the White House for many reasons. If your grades weren't good enough, or you were overheard talking about trying to escape, getting into fights. The White House was a place for punishment. When you were sent down to the White House, oftentimes on your way to the building, you'd see the frail body of another young boy stumbling out, struggling to walk, and the back of his clothes ripped to shreds. Bryant described each room in the building as containing nothing but an iron army bed covered with a one-inch thick cotton mattress. On the bed was a single pillow covered in blood and vomit. Blood splatter marked the walls and the smell of urine and puke hung in the air. You would be forced to lay on the bed on your stomach Sometimes the wild swings would hit your lower back, your legs. You would be beat for 15, 20, sometimes 30 minutes, depending on the reason you were there. If you said anything, the beating would start over. Afterwards, you would spend an hour pulling the threads of your own clothes out of your bloody wounds. One of the school's psychiatrists, Louis Souza, began experimenting on the boys using sound wave and electroshock therapy. Lewis believed behavioral disorders were related to an insufficient supply of oxygen in the blood. He decided to test this theory on unwitting boys at the Mariana campus. He created a mystery drink to give to the boys in his care. In an interview with the Okeechobee News in 2011, Jimmy Turner, who was sent to the Mariana campus in the 60s, 
describes going into a small room with Dr. Souza and then being given six to eight ounces of a bitter tasting red orange liquid and then having electrodes attached to his head. Soon after drinking the soup, as the boys called it, Jimmy says his brain would get foggy and he wouldn't be able to recall what happened to him. Another school psychologist, Robert Curry, would bring boys into his office to interview them. As the bald, husky man smoked a pipe of tobacco at his desk, he would ask the boys strange, invasive questions, such as if they liked to masturbate or if they thought about having sex with their mothers. In an interview with the Okeechobee News in 2011, Brian Middleton relayed a story of how, during his stay at Mariana, Curry would come down to the showers and watch the boys. He would call them out of the shower while they were nude and look at them. He would run his fingers through their hair, touch their shoulders, and say suggestive things. Headed into the 1950s, the Reform School in Mariana, which would have its name changed to the Arthur G. Dozer School for Boys, was beginning to get overcrowded. In 1952, the school had to temporarily stop accepting new students because living quarters designed to hold 30 boys were now holding as many as 50. Eventually, the decision is made to build another Reform School in the state to help handle the rising number of juveniles. As the state looked for a site to build a new expansion to the Mariana School, they eventually settled on a small county in South Florida called Okeechobee. By 1959, construction had finished at the property located just four miles north of the city of Okeechobee. And now, a group of supervisors from Mariana are traveling south. Their goal? to install a similar system of discipline in the new Okeechobee school. In the 1950s, Okeechobee's economy is shrinking. In an article from the Okeechobee News in 1959, a report from the research director for the Bureau of Economics for the University of Florida showed that Okeechobee had lost over 30% of its per capita income from 1951 to 1958. So word of a new school built by the state coming to the area was met with enthusiasm. A state institution like that meant reliable jobs for a small economy that was desperately in need of them. A core group of the nucleus of the Mariana staff were recruited to help run the Okeechobee School. Frank Zitch, principal at Mariana, transferred to become the administrative assistant to the superintendent. Emmett Davis, a supervisor at Mariana, 
became the director of training in Okeechobee. Okeechobee Superintendent William Salt spent five months in Mariana studying the program. By July 1959, the first 50 of what would eventually be 300 boys are shipped down to Okeechobee from Mariana. In 1965, Michael Anderson is 15 years old. His parents are divorced, and he lives with his mother in West Palm Beach. His mother's boyfriends would routinely beat him, and he would lash out, break the rules, get in trouble. One day he was caught stealing a t-shirt from a department store. His punishment was to be sent to the Florida School for Boys in Okeechobee. Once at the Okeechobee School, Michael experienced firsthand the same types of beatings boys at the Mariana campus had been through. Sometime after arriving at the school, Michael was caught with a cigarette. I like cigarettes. You know, I used to smoke. I started smoking, I think I was probably uh, right around 12 or 13 thereabouts. And um, I snuck a cigarette, but somebody uh, snitched me out because I, I hid the cigarette butt underneath the mattress of my, uh, of my, of my bed in, in the cottage. And um, boy, that was, that, was a, that was a serious mistake. Michael is approached by a cottage father, essentially a supervisor of the boys. In his hands, he holds a cigarette. This yours, he says. Michael admits it is, and he's taken away by Johns. He's taken to the Okeechobee version of Mariana's White House. The Okeechobee building went by many names, but Michael remembers one in particular. So they, they sit you on, the, on this bed in this room, and the room has got various names. Uh, it could be called the library, mm -hmm. or what I remember vividly is the stenciled uh, ink on the front door, which said adjustment unit. This whole experience uh, culminated with me sitting on the bed and uh, surrounded by four gentlemen. You know, I use the term loosely. The fact of the matter is that they, you know, they were they were torturers. You know, they they were they were individuals who uh, put a hurt on on kids. Frank Zitch, uh, Donald Johns, uh, and Emmett Davis, and then there was the psychologist. And the psychologist was, was uh, very, a, a pernicious individual, you know, mm -hmm. just, just uh, chronicling, acting like he's chronicling the events when he's just enjoying it, you know. Frank Zitch, assistant to the superintendent, begins lecturing Michael about his wrongdoings. Zitch had lost his leg in a car accident, and he prowled the Okeechobee campus with a wooden leg that gave him a very distinctive limp. Now, Frank Zitch was a frightening individual. Um, he had a prosthesis, prosthesis. He had a, a, a wooden leg. And uh, in, in the beginning uh, of this whole torture episode, uh, he had expertly used one arm to throw his leg, which was the fake fake leg. He, he, he jacked that leg up and right between my genitalia. It was just an unsavory feeling, you know, to have that, you know, it's like they're really in your space, you know, and there's nothing you can do about it because you're under their rule. He gave me the lecture. You've broken the rules. We're here to reestablish the rules. We want you to understand that we're the remedy 
for lawlessness, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was scared. I was scared. Donald Johns would be the first to beat Michael. I was told to uh, turn my head to the to the wall and uh, hold the bed. You know, there was a bed frame, and you could put your hands around the bed frame near the pillow area, right? And the commandment was, if you yell out, if you make a noise, if you peep, we start over. Mm-hmm. So when it when it finally hits. Um, it's like a it's like a, a neurological wave or something that that travels from your buttocks and then it shoots up to the top of your head and you, and, and and it's like a nuclear explosion you know it's like your head's it's like your 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 head is going to blow off you know it, the pain is ridiculous the pain is unspeakable but the problem is it's it's accumulative mm-hmm. and what do I, so what do I mean by accumulative well just as soon as the first stripe registers with you, a second one is coming. So this pain, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just you've got the apex and that's it and you walk away. Mm-hmm. Uh, hell no. So finally, after about the third or fourth stripe, I realized that I had to do something. So I thought I would try to negotiate with these people. So as I turned over, I'm looking at this guy's face, Donald Johns. His face is so twisted and his eyes are bulging. And he's really putting a lot of work into this fourth swing. Mm -hmm. And it hits me on the side of my hip. The force does. I thought that my hip got broken. I, I, it felt like it shattered. So, uh, and he started over. He started over. We, now, we got to start over, boy. It's like Struther Martin in Cool Hand Luke. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. So you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. He looked inhuman. He looked like a demon that had been conjured from hell Mm -hmm. to deliver this this beating, you know. And, well, finally, you know, he got tired and uh, he passed the baton off to Frank Zitch. Next. Zitch, the man with the wooden leg, grabs the leather tool and takes his turn at beating Michael. When that, when he got done, I was having a glimmer of hope that maybe this would be over. But to my incredulousness, it, it, it was not over. It, it was, in fact, now it was going to get serious. Now Emmett Davis takes the instrument. Davis is a former professional baseball player that towered over the other men. But he's he's fit. You can tell he's fit. You know, he's very fit. The first stripe that I received from him was just an order of magnitude more painful than the rest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it was like, you know, ice water to scalding hot water. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 
just a scalding sensation. Now, at the end of it all, um, I, I was a shuddering mess. I, I was scared out of my mind. I, heartbeat must have been at least 200 beats per minute, you know, and uh, I really thought I was going to die. Yeah. You know, when you, when you, when you experience something like this, you, you realize that these people could exterminate you and probably get away with it. And if the idea by the state was that by giving out these beatings, it would create model citizens that would be ready to integrate back into society, then they were terribly mistaken. So, yeah, so all these things, you know, they happen to us, these these really bad, horrific experiences, you know, and I, I was on the receiving end for a long time. And then when I got out, um, I turned into a bully. You know, I, I turned into a real asshole because I figured, you know, if I had to go through this bullshit and you haven't gone through half the bullshit I've gone through mm-hmm. and you fuck with me, you, you look at me wrong, I'm going to go off on you, you know, and, and, you know, I did bad shit. Stories of abuse continued through the 60s. Runaways were common with some boys being killed while escaping. One, Timmy Gabriel, was shot by a homeowner after he broke into their house while running away in 1965. Authorities at the time called it a justifiable homicide. Decades later, Timmy's brother posted online searching for answers about his brother's death. saying that their mother had told him that Timmy was shot perfectly between the eyes and that when the family received his body, they found scars and swelling covering his torso. The brother continued to seek answers about Timmy's death up until he himself passed away in 2009, leaving no one else to carry that torch. A 12-year-old boy named Cherry Black was found dead inside a water tank in Okeechobee. The official story is that the boy was attempting to run away and hid in the water tank where he drowned. But no autopsy was done. Another former student, Marvin Mike, told the ABC station WPBF that he thinks the drowning story was a cover-up by the staff at the school, telling the station that he believes they killed the boy and threw his body in the tank. The Florida School for Boys in Okeechobee remained in operation by the state until 1982, when the Eckerd Foundation took it over and renamed it the Eckerd Youth Development Center. It remained under that name for years before bouncing around to a number of private, for-profit security contractors in the late 2010s. The reform school in Mariana was shut down in 2011. That year, the University of South Florida began an investigation into the deaths and buried bodies on the abandoned Mariana property. In the course of that investigation, researchers unearthed 
55 bodies. The findings send shockwaves through the local news. And in Okeechobee, some wonder if there were bodies buried on their campus. In an interview with WPBF, a former Okeechobee student named Joseph Johnson claims he saw a boy being brought into the adjustment unit. But instead of walking out on his own, he was carried out. Joseph went on to tell the news station that he saw the staff put the boy's body into the back of a station wagon. When the vehicle returned, the boy was gone. Days later, he noticed a freshly dug mound behind the dairy barn. So with rumors buzzing thanks to the investigation at Mariana, members of the Okeechobee County Sheriff's Office gather on April 15th in 2015 to search the Okeechobee School for Boys property. Over the course of three days, deputies battled dense underbrush and blistering heat. Six cadaver dogs from four different law enforcement agencies sniffed their way around an estimated 25 acres of the property. But unlike in Mariana, the search in Okeechobee turns up no human remains. Some of the former students wanted the sheriff's office to use the same kind of ground-penetrating radar used to locate bodies in Mariana. But at a press conference on the school site, Okeechobee Captain John Roden explained that the amount of debris on the site made it impossible. You've got too, many, too much debris, okay? And number two is you don't have a location to where anybody said there is a body. The then Okeechobee County Sheriff Paul May spoke to former students of the school who were in attendance at the press conference. We have no reason whatsoever to disbelieve you, none but we just can't prove the accusations, and we tried. Some of the more pessimistic of the former students weren't surprised by the outcome. I'm hopeful that they might find something on the last day, but my gut feeling tells me that they're not gonna find anything. As the University of South Florida's report on the Mariana findings completed in 2016, it was presented to Florida Governor Rick Scott and his cabinet. Some of the over 50 bodies discovered in Mariana belonged to those that died in the 1914 fire. Some had died in a influenza outbreak in 1918. Others were listed as dying from blunt force trauma after trying to escape. Other attempted escapees were listed as dying of shotgun injuries, exposure to inclement weather, being run over by a vehicle, or simply listed as dying of an unknown cause. One of the boys who was said to have died escaping, a 15-year-old named Thomas Curry, was listed as having a crushed skull. His remains were packed into a coffin and sent to his grandmother in Philadelphia. In 2014, as the family started questioning how exactly Thomas had died, they requested his body to be exhumed and examined. But upon checking the coffin, Investigators found no body. Nothing but wood planks and straw grass. Nothing. 
it left his family baffled. Was there no body in the coffin sent to Philadelphia? And if so, then where were Thomas's remains now? One year later, after the University of South Florida had presented its findings to the Florida cabinet, the Florida legislature voted to formally apologize to the men who suffered at both schools. The text of the resolution reads, The Senate apologizes to the boys who were confined to the Arthur G. Dozer School for Boys and the Okeechobee School for the wrongs committed against them by employees of the state of Florida. Be it further resolved that the Senate expresses its commitment to ensuring that children who have been placed in the state's care are protected from abuse and violations of fundamental human decency. In 2020, the state of Florida decided not to renew the contract for the for-profit company TrueCore, which was operating the property at the Okeechobee School for Boys. The Okeechobee Youth Development Center which it was then known as, closed its doors in December of that year. In 2021, at a July Okeechobee County Commission meeting, Bert Colbreth of the Okeechobee County Economic Development Corporation said one of their top priorities is getting the boys' school property back from the state. This is actually the most, to me, it's the most exciting one. This is uh, the boys' school property uh, that we are uh, working in conjunction with the county on trying to uh, get and I uh, believe right now the county is working on the language uh, to try to go to the leg legislation on this. Um, I think this is a huge opportunity for this county uh, to, to get this property back in our hands to, to do something great with. A bill seeking to provide restitution for those abused at the schools was filed in the last two legislative sessions in Florida. But both times the bill has fizzled out and failed. There's a feeling among former Okeechobee and Mariana boys that the state is simply biding its time until the last of them die off. Decades after leaving the school, boys like Michael Anderson grew into men and had to find a way to adjust to what happened to them. And the problem is, is that um, when you try to reintegrate into society, you can't. But you try anyway, but you can't. And so what you do is you wind up suppressing memories and suppressing the experience, which is what I did for, you know, 40 some odd years. And it wasn't until I was on a cruise uh, in Alaska um, when I saw this huge humpback whale and uh, all of a sudden I, I, I felt calm. Well, I had never felt calm before. And I said, what just happened? And then it percolated to my consciousness, percolated up to my consciousness, that the word Okeechobee, you've got issues, Mike. You need to resolve this thing with Okeechobee. One of the things you, you do is, is a thing called forgiveness. You have to forgive those who fucked you up and you have to forgive yourself for not forgiving them for 40 or 50 years. 
it, 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 it's 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 a crazy thing. Uh, it's it's like a ripening of the soul. The soul cannot accept what happened to it until many many years of uh, gestation, say, and then finally it dawns on you. Ah, forgiveness is the way out of this. That's the way out of it. And to realize that that was, yeah, it was a big bump. It might've been a crevasse, but you crawled out of the crevasse and guess what? You can move on now. But, but it, that's a very long convoluted process. You know, you know, the more, the more you've been hurt, the more work you have to put into yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing. My name is Richard Marion, and I'll be back soon with another episode of True Oki. If the personality has been redirected in time, if the school subjects have been practical, if the trade training has been thorough, if the counseling has been wise, the rebuilding of an individual has been complete. If so, then no greater reward can be asked